Happy Saturday, everyone. Last Saturday, we had kind of a classics double feature, and we are doing that again today as well. The Freedom Rides were happening at about the same time as the sit-in movement of the 1960s that we talked about this week, and some of the same people were involved in both the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins. Sarah and Dublina did two episodes on the Freedom Rides in the U.S. in September of 2011, and they're a little bit shorter than our episodes typically are today, so we are playing them both together. So enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And you could be forgiven for thinking it's 1961 again with all of the big civil rights anniversaries that have been in the news this year, 50th anniversaries. That's so true. Um, Most notably, the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides this past May, when more than 400 people of all ages, male, female, black, white, different religions from all over the country, decided to challenge the racial segregation of interstate buses. Yeah, and the Freedom Rides have been really well covered this year. There have been articles, news stories, two reunions of riders, one in Jackson, Mississippi, one in Chicago. I think that one was hosted by Oprah herself. There was a fantastic American Experience documentary based on the book on the Freedom Riders by Raymond Arsenault. There have been op-eds and reflections from the riders in national papers. But we are not ones to let the May anniversary of the Freedom Ride stop us from doing a podcast on them in September because September is also a really important date for the Freedom Rides. It's when change actually happened, when the Interstate Commerce Commission finally ruled that the signs segregating whites and blacks at bus and train facilities had to come down and actually backed up that ruling with a really hefty fine for offenders. So that ruling validated the riders and their tactics. And that's worth pointing out before we get into this two-part episode on the Freedom Rides and before we get into how the ride started, because even though today the riders are clearly celebrated as civil rights heroes, at the time what they were doing was extremely controversial, even within the civil rights movement itself. So they didn't know what they were what they were setting out to do. They just knew they had to do it. Yeah. But before we even get to the rides themselves, our story really starts in 1944 with a woman named Irene Morgan. Now, everyone knows Rosa Parks, right, and her refusal to give up her bus seat in the 1950s. But a decade earlier, Morgan refused to give up her seat on a Greyhound traveling through Virginia. And Morgan, who made World War II bomber planes for a plant for a living, was coming home to Baltimore after visiting her mother. So after refusing to move, she kicked the sheriff's deputy who tried to take her off the bus. And later she said, quote, I started to bite him, but he looked dirty, so I couldn't bite him. So all I could do was claw and tear his clothes. Yeah, and that and other great quotes are from her New York Times obituary. But Morgan was arrested and went ahead and paid that $100 fine for resisting arrest. But she refused to pay the $10 fine for violating a Virginia law about segregated seating. So it was off to court she went. And eventually the NAACP took up her case and appealed to the Supreme Court. And in 1946, the court actually ruled in her her favor in Morgan versus Virginia. And um, just the gist of the ruling here, C 
seating arrangements for the different races in interstate motor travel require a single uniform rule to promote and protect national travel. Sounds simple enough. Basically, you can't make African-Americans sit in the back of the bus and white people sit in the front. Nobody should be giving up their seat unless it's just to an old person or, or something like that. So it sounds simple, but it wasn't because southern states continued to flaunt the law with segregated seating, segregated waiting rooms, restrooms, water fountains. So eventually, somebody decided that they needed to do something and actually test out this new law. And that was a group organized by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. They decided to test the new ruling by staging the journey of reconciliation through the Upper South. The Upper South. Yeah, and that's important here, especially when we get into the later Freedom Rides where they head into Alabama and Mississippi and and things get a lot different. Back in 1947, they knew that wasn't an option. Right. So basically— This is how it worked. Eight black men and eight white men would ride on interstate buses and trains and see if Morgan versus Virginia was a law in action or in name only. So there was a catch, though. It would be nonviolent. Even if they were faced with arrests or beatings, the riders would not react. So while Morgan had been the inspiration for this, she was obviously not their nonviolent role model. No, with her attempted bites and all of that. I think that makes Morgan such an interesting character in this whole thing, too, which is such a famous nonviolent movement that she is the inspiration for it. But for that nonviolent inspiration, leaders instead turned to Gandhi, and he actually was the inspiration for Course founding back in 1942. But the journey of reconciliation, it sounds like it's going to make waves. It sounds like a big deal, but it really didn't have that much of an impact. The writers did meet with violence. Three of them spent a month on a North Carolina chain gang after violating segregation rules in Chapel Hill. But the story wasn't really picked up by national media, and folks just weren't that interested. So Arsenault writes that the ride ultimately, quote, brought about little change and was soon forgotten by all but a handful of nonviolent activists. So a decade goes by, And then in 1960, some important things start to happen to inspire a new wave of freedom rides. One of those things is that JFK is elected president. Another is that Nashville sit-ins end segregation at city lunch counters there. And also the Supreme Court issues another decision related to interstate travel. This time it's Boynton versus Virginia, which made any racial segregation illegal in interstate commerce, and that's anything. So not only should a black person be able to take any seat on the bus, he should also be able to use any waiting room, restroom, coffee counter, and so on. All right. So there's a new Supreme Court decision and this momentum going from the Nashville sit-ins. And CORE and its director, James Farmer, decide, let's test this new ruling, Boynton versus Virginia. So this time, not only would the new riders keep that direct action movement of the sit-ins going, they would help promote CORE, too, on this national scale, since it was, after all, less well-known than the NAACP or SNCC or the SCLC. And that's something, as we mentioned in the beginning, that this was kind of controversial within the movement. That was something that added to the ambivalence or sometimes outright hostility directed at the initial ride by much of the movement. Um, But we've got to give you a sense of how these initial core riders were picked because 
they weren't just willy-nilly passengers on the bus. They all had to be trained. They all had to come with recommendations even. And again, they all kind of came from different sort of facets of life. One member, James Peck, was from Manhattan, and he had participated in the 1940s Journey of Reconciliation. So he had some experience with this. The others were handpicked to maintain their nonviolent directive. So in addition to having to get recommendations, as Sarah said, the youngest of them also had to get parental permission. They also underwent careful training to resist that violent impulse, but really they only anticipated refusal of service and possibly maybe arrest. You can see videos, though, of this training, and it's pretty fascinating to watch and really uncomfortable because, you know, it is a simulated situation, and these people actually all know each other well. There's the man playing the antagonizer, the woman playing the waitress, and it's strange to see. But as you mentioned, they were from all different walks of life. They were all ages, all professions, students, retirees, editors. He was a folk singer. And most were from the North or the Midwest, with a few Southern exceptions, including probably the most famous writer, John Lewis. He was from Alabama. Um, But that's something also to consider when we were mentioning earlier about the hostility or ambivalence within the movement, that these people were largely Northerners, were largely Midwesterners, and they were coming into the South to to test these segregated Jim Crow rules. So the first riders left May 4th, 1961. They were departing from Washington, D.C., and ultimately the final destination was going to be New Orleans, which is a bus ride that was going to take a while, and they didn't really know what they would encounter along the way. But the bus started out winding its way through Virginia and North Carolina. There were 13 riders They were taking Greyhound and Trailways buses, so two different lines, just testing out the whole range of the system. And at first, they really saw what they expected. Stations would sort of reluctantly break from their segregationist policies just while the riders were there. So just go ahead and let them sit in the black sitting room or the white sitting room, whatever race they weren't. Let them use the wrong restroom, whatever they were doing, and then just um, let them be let them get on their bus and move on through town, get out of their hair, and presumably return to business as usual, which was full-on segregation. But by Charlotte, North Carolina, that wasn't what was happening anymore. People weren't just letting it slide until they were gone. Trouble started. There were arrests and beatings in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And by May 13th, the riders finally made it to Atlanta, where they had this little get-together sort of pause in the ride planned with Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, and they were really hoping that when they got there, he would join in, become a freedom rider with them. But instead, he took a very different attitude. He, he warned them. He told them that he had heard bad news coming out of Alabama, and they should seriously reconsider continuing on. And qu- even questioning the wisdom of what they were doing in the first place, whether this was really helping the movement. So this is pretty discouraging news to hear at their Atlanta reception. And to make matters worse, James Farmer, the leader of CORE, gets word that his father has died and has to pull out for a few days to go home. Still, though, May 14th, Mother's Day, the leaderless riders set off from Atlanta to Birmingham, Alabama on Greyhound and Trailways buses that are leaving one hour apart. And sure enough, 
Shortly after crossing the Alabama state line, one of the buses runs into trouble. The Greyhound hits a crowd of about 200 men in Anniston. Yeah, and it's all been planned. A Klansman lies down in front of the bus so that the other members of the mob can slash the tires. And the bus maneuvers out of town, but it's followed and hounded by a car. Then finally, the tires go flat. The driver gets out, checks them, and walks away. Just leaves the people on the bus. And there's this really harrowing scene in the documentary where passenger May Francis Moultrie hears someone shouting, Where is the gas? Where is the gas? Yeah, I'd I'd really recommend to you that documentary for seeing some of these Freedom Riders reflect on it and, and say what they heard and what they experienced. But the mob attacks the bus then and throws a firebomb in through the back window and then blocks the door to prevent the people from getting off. And also keep in mind, there aren't just Freedom Riders on this bus. There are regular passengers, too, who are just trying to get to Birmingham or wherever and are caught up in this. Two things ultimately save the riders and those unaffiliated bus passengers. The fuel tank explodes, which makes the mob back away from the bus. And then highway patrolmen finally arrive, but not until the coughing, choking passengers who have just escaped from the bus are beaten by the crowd. There's one catch, though, with this with this violent scene. Photographs are taken, and it becomes a major news story. And yeah, they go worldwide. Yeah, not just a national news story. It becomes worldwide news, something terrible happening in the United States. But meanwhile, that second bus is still chugging on toward Birmingham. Yeah, where little did they know, the city's commissioner of public safety, Bull Connor, has made a deal with the KKK. The deal is that when the bus comes to town, the Klan will get 15 minutes without police interference. To do whatever they want to yeah. the people on the bus. No arrests, no trouble at all. And there's another catch to this, too. The FBI had an informant in the Klan, and he knew the plan to attack the bus. J. Edgar Hoover didn't report the mob's plans to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The informant even participated when the mob attacked and beat the riders as they came into the station. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little more in the part two of this episode and and some of the legal battles that ensued. But just like in Aniston, photographers get pictures of this mob attacking the passengers coming from Atlanta. And this news makes uh, international headlines, too. It's very disturbing to people, and it's something that um, the federal administration really can't ignore. So Jim Peck, who has been unofficially in charge since James Farmer left, makes the call to continue the ride from the hospital. He has been severely beaten, and it's uh, worth noting here, too, that a lot of the white riders would be targeted initially, sort of as betrayers to their race by the mob. So Jim Peck was really, really bad off. Pictures of him are disturbing to see, but he said that they felt Quote, they must not surrender to violence, so let's not stop here. There's a problem, though. Like, I mean, that's a very noble, brave thing to do to try to continue the ride, but there's a problem. None of the drivers out of Birmingham are willing to take them. Nobody wants to risk it. Nobody wants to risk being on a firebomb bus or attacked by a mob and and dragged down with the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, you can hardly blame them, but they finally decide that the ride has to end. 
they'll fly to New Orleans instead. But even that proves to be quite difficult. The mob follows them. A bomb threat is called in on their plane, and it seems that they're stuck in Alabama indefinitely. Can't get out of the the Birmingham airport. So like we said, by this point, the Kennedys really have to get involved with this story all over the world's papers and the poor, beaten freedom riders stuck in the airport. They can't let things get any worse. So John Siegenthaler, who was the assistant to Attorney General Robert Kennedy, arranges the riders' flight and escorts them to New Orleans. There they're met by state police at the plane who protect them but also curse them as they walk to the terminal. And that ends the ride. It's over. The Kennedys think that hopefully it's all over. Um, They can get back to international pursuits. But it's not because there is another wave setting out from Nashville, the students in the Nashville student movement realized that they couldn't let CORE's attempt end there, end in violence. And the leader of that movement, Diane Nash, who was a student in the Nashville movement, told a Birmingham reverend, quote, if they stop us with violence, the movement is dead. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And this September, we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Interstate Commerce Commission's ruling that all interstate bus and train facilities in the U.S. had to pull down signs segregating whites and blacks. And it was the result of a summer-long effort by a group that called themselves the Freedom Riders to test laws that were already on the books but were just largely ignored through many southern states. So picking up where we left off, the original core riders have been badly beaten, traumatized, and essentially evacuated out of Birmingham for New Orleans by a special assistant to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And it seemed like at this time that the Freedom Ride that had started May 4th, 1961 in D.C. was over at this point. But yeah. Well, and we should we should say, too, like if you are a listener who drops in on random podcasts, it really is worth going back and, and checking out that first episode because it'll help give you the context you need for this one since it is a part two. But we left it a real cliffhanger there. That was that was a crucial moment there in New Orleans, defeated, it seems. The Kennedys feel that things are wrapped up to their satisfaction. But then suddenly they get news out of Nashville that things aren't over at all. Right. Students in Nashville, many of them were veterans of the lunch counter sit-ins, though still in their teens and early 20s. They decided that the ride could not end in violence. So spearheaded by Diane Nash, who was a Fisk student, many members of the Nashville student movement decide to skip their finals and go to Alabama. Yeah, get on a bus. And they completely know what's at stake. This is the part that's just crazy to me. They make their wills, these young kids, and they board buses to Birmingham. Nash, who coordinates the whole thing from home base in Nashville, basically tells a Birmingham pastor, we're coming. Yeah, and I mean, the wills is the really shocking part, but the leaving before finals is a really big deal, too, because a lot of these kids are the first members of their family to go to college, but they decide that continuing the Freedom Rides, not letting nonviolence end in violence like this is is more important. So this time, though, the makeup of the riders is a little different from the 
first ride, which was all staged by the group core. It's still a mix of black and white men and women, and they're taking Greyhound and Trailways buses just like before. But they're all quite young this time. There were middle-aged folks, retired people last time. Most of them now, though, are 19, 20, and they're also a lot more Southerners in the group. So kids from Atlanta and Nashville, of course, Charleston, Tampa, in addition to kids from other parts of the country, New York, Oklahoma, Illinois. It's it's kind of a more diverse group in that sense. A strange thing happens when they get to Birmingham, though. When the first bus arrives, Commissioner of Public Safety, Bull Connor, who we mentioned in the last podcast, he lets the regular passengers off, covers the window with paper, and then holds the remaining people on board. And finally, after they sweat it out in the May heat for a while, they're let off, and then they proceed to the white waiting area, and they're arrested. That night, they're released from jail and put into cars, which is very ominous, but they drive right to the state line of Alabama and Tennessee, and they're told by Connor to get out and make their way back to Nashville from there. Tennessee State University student Catherine Burks Brooks tells Connor that we'll see you back in Birmingham by high noon. So they're not about to be put down. No, and and this is still a scary situation, though, that they've just been dropped off in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. They don't know if maybe there's some vigilante group, the Klan, waiting for them on the other side of the border. Bull Bull Connor is just handing them off or what they're going to do. So they hide. They find shelter with an older couple. And by the next day, Nash has arranged from afar a ride for them to get back to Birmingham. And I don't think they make it by noon, but they do make it back the next day. But by the time they're back in Birmingham, the Nashville riders meet the second wave of of their group. They are, just like last time, different buses traveling into Alabama. But there's a problem besides Bull Connor and the threatening crowd. The bus drivers won't drive. So the riders are stuck there again. They're stuck in Birmingham. And and we mentioned this in the last episode, individual bus drivers refusing to drive because they were afraid they would get their bus set on fire or be beaten or something. But in this case, it's the entire union refusing to drive. So there's really no way out of town again. Yeah. So over the moment, it's looking kind of hopeless. But the Kennedy administration finally pressures Alabama's governor, John Patterson, to promise protection or else face having the National Guard called in. And so Patterson agrees to provide state protection as the riders continue their trip to Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, we mentioned this American Heritage documentary in the last episode based on Raymond Arsenault's book, and it really contains some great interviews with former Freedom Riders. But it's worth watching, I think, just to see Catherine Burke's Brooks' expression as she recalls feeling relaxed enough to doze on the bus. It's kind of an expression like, what was I thinking, mixed with total disappointment, a little sarcasm thrown in there. It's it's a You should watch it just to see that. But That feeling, that total relaxation, able to fall asleep on the bus feeling, obviously doesn't last very long because in Montgomery, the state protection drops off and they're thinking, well, the city police will pick up protection, but nobody ever comes. So here the bus is just rolling into Montgomery with no one around them. Yeah, and John Siegenthaler, Robert Kennedy's assistant, the man who had been negotiating with the governor about providing state protection, he remembered thinking, 
quote, I knew suddenly betrayal, disaster, I hope not death. So he's scared, too, at this point. A mob of more than 200 waits at the Greyhound station for them. The first target this time is the reporters and the cameramen. Because the mob has seen how quickly these pictures get out, not just in the South, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And they don't want that to happen again. So for a sense of what this would have been like for the reporters, Time reporter Calvin Trillin, who took part in the rides as a journalist, recently wrote in The New Yorker that he'd tell his friend, a life photographer, quote, When we get in one of those situations, at best I don't know you. At worst, I'm one of the people chasing you. Of course, the writers were also very severely beaten. As a white writer, Jim Zwerg was quickly beaten unconscious and kicked in the face. Before going down, though, he remembered seeing men armed with baseball bats, chains, hammers, and this is crazy, even one guy with a pitchfork. Yeah. So imagine that coming towards you. Burks Brooks remembers women shouting with babies in their arms. It was a spectacle in addition to this really violent scene. And John Lewis, who had been part of the original core ride and had been actually attacked in South Carolina, was hit in the head with a wooden crate. And William Barbie had somebody try to drive a steel rod through his ear. And even Sigenthaler, who is the direct representative to the president, was hit with a pipe trying to help one of the female Freedom Riders and he was knocked unconscious. So finally, the police arrived. They broke up the crowd with tear gas. So the next day, May 21st, sort of marks a turning point for the Freedom Rides. The riders and 1,500 supporters filled the First Baptist Church in Montgomery for a meeting. And by this point, Martin Luther King and the larger movement really had to get involved and stand behind the riders, even though, as we mentioned before, many were ambivalent about the ride initially or even thought it would come out hurting the movement. But after the violence that had had happened, they, they had to all stand together and, and support the ride. And so Martin Luther King actually comes down to Montgomery to uh, meet up with everyone here at the church. Outside the church, though, a mob of 3,000 gathers, and they're breaking windows, threatening to burn down the church. The marshals that are set in to control the crowd are just random federal workers. They disperse tear gas with the wind blowing toward them and end up having to run away. Yeah, they just have little patches on their sleeves, not even uniforms. So... After that, there's this night of phone calls. Martin Luther King is on the phone with Robert Kennedy trying to get him to do something. Robert Kennedy is on the phone with Patterson trying to get him to act. Martin Luther King even even gathers up a group of committed nonviolent volunteers to leave the church and dissuade a group of black cab drivers from using violence against the mob. So they're still trying to stick to their principle of nonviolence here. It's the best way for them to hopefully get out of this situation, too. So finally, the governor puts the city under martial law and people in the church are free. You know, the crowd is broken up. They're free to go. And the Freedom Riders are also free to continue under the protection this time of the Alabama National Guard. So they hit the road heading toward Mississippi. And at the border, the Mississippi National Guard takes over with commands to take the bus right on through to Jackson. No stops, no trouble. And it kind of seems like they're out of the frying pan into the fire here because Mississippi was considered the most dangerous southern state. You can hear them talking about how as bad as Alabama had had been for them, 
Mississippi seemed like there might be worth, worse things waiting. And there were scary signs right across the border. There were signs that said things like, quote, prepare to meet thy God. So it looked like it was going to be as bad as they thought it was going to be. But response that they get there is quite different from Alabama's messy mob violence. According to Trillin, the former Time reporter, Mississippi's Citizens Council and State Sovereignty Commission wanted to avoid national news scandals and presidential interference, too. And the president and attorney general wanted to avoid the violence and beatings on the national news. So they made this compromise. Instead of mob violence, there would be an organized rapid police response. So what does that mean? This basically means that the first riders from trailways disembarked the bus, went to the White's waiting room, and were asked to leave politely. And after they refused, they were arrested. And this happened again with the Greyhound bus. The charges against them are things like breach of peace. Yeah, so it's this very orderly, nonviolent... Comparatively calm. Yeah, maybe even (laughs) disturbingly calm. I don't know after what they've gone through. But from there, they'd be quickly processed and sent through court, put into the city jail, and then eventually shipped off not just to any old prison, but to the state penitentiary, Parchman State Prison Farm, which was one of the most notorious prisons in the country. Just a little side note, even if you don't know about Parchman, you've probably heard about it if you've listened really carefully to blues or folk recordings, because in the 1930s, Alan Lomax recorded singers and bluesmen for the Library of Congress singing really sad songs about how hard life was in Parchman. But the Freedom Riders didn't have the expected reaction that all the authorities in Mississippi thought they would have. They thought that they would just post bail, get out, and not come back. Yeah, get out of town. But instead, they take up the slogan, jail, no bail, and resolve to fill up the prison and clog up their system. So busloads of them just keep coming through that summer, even though on May 29th, Robert Kennedy petitioned the Interstate Commerce Commission to prohibit segregation in interstate bus travel and pleaded with the riders to take a cooling off period while the request was processed. Yeah. So he was basically like, okay, we're trying to put this through. Can you guys please stop for a little while? He was encouraging them to shift their attention to voter registration. You know, something something to work on. Please let this go. But they were completely unwilling to do that. They rejected the cooling off period. And instead, the rides intensified. Ultimately, 300 of the 436 Freedom Riders ended up at Parchman Prison. And finally, by September 22nd, the anniversary we are commemorating here, the ICC issued the order that all segregated signs would come down at interstate bus and train terminals. Um, and we've got to talk about the the effect of the rides and and what people thought at the time, since they were kind of unpopular at the beginning, even within the movement. According to the New Yorker article we mentioned earlier, a 1961 Gallup poll showed that only one in four Americans approved of the rides. But after the victory, it was clear that they had accomplished something. They had been effective. Yeah, so they saw that nonviolent activism could really work. According to a Smithsonian article by Marion Smith Holmes, the New York Times, for example, which was formerly critical of the rides. They admitted that the Freedom Riders, quote, started the chain of events, which resulted in the new ICC order. 
It also had the effect of empowering young student leaders in the movement and of forcing ties between the Kennedy administration and civil rights leaders. Exactly. Those late night phone calls we were talking about where Martin Luther King is is calling up the Kennedys and all of these 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who decide to leave school during their exams and, and go out and do this. But in addition to Raymond Arsenault's book and that American Experience documentary that is inspired by it, there is just so much on this story. It's a really it's a really great one if you want to do some research yourself and get even deeper into it. There are countless interviews and articles by former writers and politicians and journalists, and there's a great photographic record, too. And I wanted to just talk about that a little bit more because I think it's so interesting. So there aren't just images of the violent beatings and the burning buses and the segregated waiting rooms, those images that really went across international newspaper headlines. There are also kind of more personal images, too. So in 2002, the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission was forced to open its archives after this lengthy, like multi-decade long lawsuit with the American Civil Liberties Union. And after that, 300 mugshots of the Freedom Riders became available for the first time. And an editor named Eric Etheridge decided to, he was really moved by all of these photos of these people who have been arrested and kind of have these defiant looks. Some of them are almost smiling. Some of them have clearly been roughed up. But he decided to seek out the Freedom Riders that were photographed and re-photograph them since they would, of course, all be mature adults by that point. And he just cold called them. He told Smithsonian that his, quote, best icebreaker was, I have your mugshot from 1961. Have you ever seen it? a very cool story. He got a lot of photos, made a book out of it, and it is really interesting to to see what these people went on to do with the rest of their lives after after doing something like this, maybe when they're only 19 years old. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine that it was thrilling to call them and maybe meet them. I mean, these people, no matter what you think about their strategy, how they went about what they did, they were uniquely brave people. Yeah, and to find out how many of them were still involved in activism or had continued work that seemed really fitting for somebody who was a former freedom writer, somebody who would go out and and do this. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Saturday Classic. If you have heard any kind of email address or maybe a Facebook URL during the course of the episode, that might be obsolete. It might be doubly obsolete because we have changed our email address again. You can now reach us at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 